Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Israel podcast. I'm Avishai bin Sasson Gordis, and in honor of Israel's 69th Independence Day, celebrated earlier this week, I'll be talking about the Israeli Declaration of Independence. Some political texts have the capacity to move us to feel and act. The greatest of them transcend the specific time and place in which they were presented and reach the level of a society's holy text. Such is the case with Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or the United States Declaration of Independence. You might not be able to list every grievance the colonies had against the British crown, but you can definitely repeat the main movements. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For Israelis, one of these texts is our Declaration of Independence. What you just heard is the voice of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister declaring Israeli independence. This is one paragraph, maybe the most crucial one, of the full declaration that was approved and read out loud on Friday, May 14, 1948, in a special meeting of the People's Council, the 37-member pre-state representative body of the Yishuv, which is how the Jews living in Palestine referred to themselves. And although the British mandate would only conclude eight hours or so later, on midnight between Friday and Saturday, the declaration was made on Friday in order to avoid Chilul Shabbat, that is, a violation of the Sabbath rest. Ben-Gurion was reading from a text printed by typewriter, and the 25 signatories present in the hall signed their names on a piece of parchment that included only the final segment of the declaration. The rest would have to be calligraphed by the artist Ote Valish later on. Eleven more signatories would add their names once the siege of Jerusalem, where they were that day, was broken, as would the last member who was out of the country on the day of the declaration. The text of the declaration could be divided into four main parts. A historical preamble, an operative paragraph, which is the one we just listened to, in which the state is declared and its name is given to it, a set of promises about what that state will be like, and finally the signing paragraph. It's through that last paragraph that I'd like to retell the fascinating story of the drafting of the Declaration. The paragraph reads, Placing our trust in the Rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv on this Sabbath eve, the fifth day of ER, 5708, 14th of May, 1948. Famously, the Declaration doesn't mention God even once. It begins with the emergence of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, its creation of the eternal book of books, the exile of the people and its aspirations to return to its homeland. It goes through the major movements of the history of Zionism, concluding with the Holocaust, the Yishuv's involvement in the Second World War, and the UN partition plan. But the God that stands at the heart of the Bible is nowhere to be found here. So much so, 
that one of the religious signatories added the abbreviation of with the help of God to his name in order to have some divine mention on the scroll of declaration. The one exception to the omission of God is the expression Rock of Israel, mentioned in the final paragraph that I just read. The story as told by Ben-Gurion, and as most people know it, is that the religious and socialist members of the final drafting committee, chaired by Ben-Gurion himself, couldn't agree about whether or not to have God mentioned in the text. As the argument started to escalate, Ben-Gurion supposedly suggested that they leave the vague phrase as he wrote it, to stand as it is, and allow everyone to read into it what they chose. Ben-Gurion's story is probably a fair description of the events leading to the Declaration, but in one way at least, it's embellished. The expression wasn't chosen by Ben-Gurion himself, who did have the central role in forging the emotion-laden, pathos-filled final text. It was put there three weeks earlier by two unknown Jews in Tel Aviv, Mordechai Bem and his neighbor Rabbi Harry Solomon Davidovich. Bem was a 33-year-old secular Tel Aviv lawyer whose parents made Aliyah when he was nine. He worked at the People's Council's Justice Department under the supervision of Pinchas Ozen. Ozen would become Israel's first justice minister in a few weeks. About three weeks before the declaration would be finally made, Rosen gave Bem a secret assignment for the holiday. This was happening on the eve of Passover. And now I quote, to draft the series of events that has led to the foundation of an independent rule and determines that the interim state council will take into its hands the authority and responsibility for the running of the state. Bem went home, and although the assignment was secret, since he had no idea where to start, he consulted his family. They suggested that he head over down the street to the home of Rabbi Davidovich. Davidovich was born in Lithuania in 1887 and moved to the U.S. when he was 16. After moving to America, he gave up most of his traditional lifestyle, but ended up getting ordained as a conservative rabbi at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and getting a Ph.D. at Columbia University. He made Aliyah in 1934, and despite giving up most of his religious lifestyle, he remained fully committed to the idea of the divine promise of the land to the people of Israel. The product of those first few hours of work was a piece of paper onto which were copied several paragraphs from the United States Declaration of Independence and some verses from the Pentateuch that expressed the Jewish people's connection to the land. Over the next few days, Bem created the first draft of the Declaration, and in it the phrase, the Rock of Israel, which he chose most certainly at Davidovich's suggestion, to replace Thomas Jefferson's divine providence, mentioned in the final paragraph of the United States Declaration. No longer working with Davidovich, Bem omitted most, though not all, of the religious language contained in the early draft. Instead, he opted for a legalistic approach, where Israel's founding was justified by the grievances committed against the Jewish people throughout its history. On April 27th, he submitted the first official draft to his superiors. And although the Declaration's text would change dramatically over the next couple of weeks, Bem's initial structure, the length and the general format, and even certain expressions like Rock of Israel, would remain the same throughout. Over the next week or so, Bem went on to draft at least three more versions of the Declaration. These considerably changed the spirit of the document. First, they omitted any, any remaining reference to the divine promise of the land to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that was left as a holdover from the first draft. God was kicked out from the Zionist retelling of history not to be allowed back. 
In addition, the new versions focused on the achievements of the Zionist movement while downplaying the role of the debt owed to the Jewish people by the nations of the world. The narrative had become one of success that justifies a sovereign future instead of a demand by an aggrieved nation. The drafts were given to Ozen, the head of the department, who was unhappy, so he passed the task on to Tzvi Bevinson, a former worker of his and future Supreme Court Justice of the State of Israel. Bevinson was given 48 hours to create a new draft, and by the time he was done, the document had become significantly more impressive. Bevinson, known for being a succinct writer, cut out most of the earlier drafts. He recast some of the historical preamble, but his most important contribution was in the operative and promissory parts of the Declaration. He added a stipulation that the new state would be founded as a democratic state, and not just a Jewish one as it was declared so far. He also added in a promise of equal rights to the Arab citizens of the future state, as well as a call for peace to the neighboring nations, and finally he stipulated that the new state would only claim the territories allotted to it by the partition plan, equal to about 62% of mandatorial Palestine. His draft was handed over to three staffers at the Justice Department, one of whom was Ben, and they revised important elements in Bernson's draft. Democracy was pushed out of the operative paragraph to the promissory section. The full equality offered to the Arabs by the Bernson draft is reframed as a call to the Arab citizens to participate in the building of the state. The delineation of the borders was dropped entirely in order to allow for the possibility of added gains now that the Arabs had turned down the partition plan, and Herzl was mentioned in name in the new draft. The edited draft was brought before the People's Administration, and the 13-member council discussed it on May 12th. After a heated discussion, it was decided, in accordance with Ben-Gurion's position, to leave out specification of the borders of the state. Also, unhappy with the document, the council tasked Moshe Sharit, the foreign minister, with redrafting it. The following day, Sharit returned with a revised text, somewhat more grandiose than the previous version, in which every paragraph opened with a lawyery sounding insofar. Ben-Gurion was unhappy with this version and led a final redrafting of the declaration. He cut down a third of Sharit's text, including all of the insofars, and finalized the version we've come to know. Somewhere during this final stage of rewriting, the word democracy was cut out. Which leads us to an important point. The story of texts like the Declaration of Independence tells us that it is not by mistake that the text is as we find it. The people who wrote it were well aware of what they were doing. In our case, their choices tell us of a group of people determined to retell the story of Zionism as a story of redemption brought about by human endeavor, of a people who returned to their historic homeland and reinforced their right to it by their own labor, of a nation among the nations that can argue from its history, but also from the national right of all other peoples, and from the promises and sins made to and against it by other nations. It is inspired by the Declaration of Independence of the American people, but gives it a distinct spin of its own. It promises, and here I quote, to foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. In short, it's a capsule of an Israeli vision of ourselves. But is it still relevant? The short answer is yes. For reasons I will discuss in a different episode, Israel doesn't have a constitution. 
And while the courts refrain from adopting the Declaration as a binding legal document, they have over the years referred to it more than once as the Israeli credo, expressing a form of social commitment. Basing on it rulings in favor of freedom of the press and other human and political rights. In the beginning of the 1990s, the Knesset passed two laws that became the basis of a de facto constitution. These laws anchored the interpretation of rights in the spirit of the Declaration, thereby giving it some added interpretive weight. The Declaration also tends to come up as holy texts do in discussions between Israelis about the spirit of the country and where it should head. Finally, if you were worried about the fact that the Declaration neglects to make Israel a democracy, then worry not. Many laws have passed in the intervening 69 years that state explicitly that Israel is and should remain a Jewish and democratic state. Much of the story I told today comes from an amazing article written by Professor Yoram Shachal. To the best of my knowledge, the article is regrettably available only in Hebrew, but I'll link to it anyway in the comments on the podcast on Medium and Facebook. I'll also link to a full English text of the Declaration and a video of Ben-Gurion reading it. If you enjoyed this episode, consider rating the podcast on iTunes and listening to previous episodes. I hope you'll join me again in two weeks. In the meantime, I invite you to continue the conversation on my Facebook page or on SoundCloud where I'll be posting the links I mentioned throughout as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at Avishai BSG, Avishai with a Y. The podcast can be found on facebook.com slash the Israel podcast. See you in two weeks.